Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. This is remarkably session 36 of season five. Is that count right? That's right. That's right. Um, I feel like this season has been going on as long as the uh, global pandemic. (laughs) Something like that. When did we start it? Season five? Last April, March. (laughs) Right. Yes. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But it isn't like season five caused the pandemic or anything. So, uh, yeah, yeah. The the pandemic uh, predated season five. It did. It did. It did. Did the pandemic cause season five? (laughs) Right. Now, that's that's more possible. (laughs) That's more possible. Yeah. This uh, time is really, really, it's 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 stood still. (laughs) <laughs> it has, but, but the, you know what? I'm glad we had this to share with each exactly. other and with our wonderful everyone who joins us live most nights and all the wonderful listeners out there. Glad we've all had this to uh, sustain us during these difficult times. Absolutely, you know, and I've just been kind of reflecting again on how uh, how much. Not only how much fun this project has been, but how much I've learned during this project. Um, I mean, you know, I can't because already, obviously, you know, I've been having lots of discussions about the Amazon series and especially this past week with the release of the image and everything. I've done several, you know, broadcasts and interviews about it and everything. And um, it's just you know, people start talking about, like, do you think they're going to, like, make up characters that aren't even in the book at all? And I'm like, of course they're going to make up characters that aren't in the book at all. You cannot do that. Like, you know, it's just there's so many things that, uh, you know, my my perspective has been completely changed on after, you know, actually yeah. going through this um, um uh, this uh, this 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 really fun exercise that we've been doing. The better question is, are they going to include characters that we made up? Well, right. That's the real question, right? That's the real question. Now, you know, it's uh, um, what's going to be really interesting is to see what their eventual long term plans are, because I'm fully expecting, by the way, that they have like MCU level like architectonic plans for spinoff series and everything after, you know, these five seasons go and everything. Um, uh, so, I, you know, uh, and, and that's of course the biggest thing, um, about, um, the biggest thing about that image that they released last week, the one with the, the one that seems pretty clearly to be an image of Tyrion, uh, in the Calcuria and, uh, you know, with the trees in the background is, uh, that seemed to me like they're they were um uh they were flexing in that image right i mean i think that amazon was clearly flexing and saying hey look we're doing silmarillion stuff cliff broadway on the one ring.net was pointing out that uh he had been expecting this because in all of the like the interviews they'd done with um cast members and stuff the silmarillion was placed in the background of every single interview that they did. Like you could see the Silmarillion prominently on the shelf behind the actors every single time. Um, and uh, so, you know, they have not released any information about their, the, what is covered in their, in their new big, huge half a billion dollar deal that they made. But, um, but it's, clearer and clearer um you know that they chose that image like we're just going to release for the first image of uh which is which they've said they've confirmed is an actual shot 
um, you know, it's not just a, it's not just a, a, a con- it's not just concept art. Like it's an actual frame uh, from episode one of the series, um, and uh, that they chose like their first image to release as an as a Valinorian image with the trees in the background. I mean, they're kind of. Uh, making things pretty clear there uh, and that we can expect some more Silmarillion. So what what does this mean? Does it mean we're going to, you know, could we get like the, uh, you know, the 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 Baron and Luthien, you know, spinoff series, you know, the like one or two season, you know, one to three season Baron and Luthien. I don't who knows, like we could possibly. So I say all this, Dave, in response to what you were just saying, what they've said for season one chronologically is not going to not likely to overlap much with what we've done so far. Right. But (laughs) if they spin off, uh, we could, uh, we could come into overlap sooner rather than later. Uh, I think because it seems pretty likely. Um, it seems pretty likely that they, uh, actually have the license to more that more than we thought. Yep. But they don't have the license to Bob Wick. No, exactly. That's going to cost them. Well, okay. I'd I'd part with the Bobway license for you know, uh, maybe just maybe just uh, five million dollars instead of five hundred. You know, I, I think Bobway can be bought. Uh, so uh, yeah, uh, uh, Jeff, Bobway can be bought. Just saying. Just saying. Um, <laughs> since, of course, we can be fairly sure they're watching. Um, but uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, clearly. Uh, so we need to forge ahead and continue paving the way as we've been doing now for low these many years <laughs> for the Amazon show. Uh, so today is our the first. Is, is, no, it's not the first because I guess the casting was the first one. Uh, but as we continue doing our uh, post sort of. Mixing in our post-production episodes as we also get towards the end of the season. It's going to be uh, episode 11 next time? Yeah, so we're up to episode 11 out of 13, which we'll be discussing uh, during our next session, two weeks from tonight. And tonight we're doing pre-production. We're doing visual concepts, uh, uh, photos and concept art, which is really fun. We're going to do, we're doing uh, prop gathering and uh, uh, location spotting. Which is always really fun to do. Um, it's really, you know, and again, this is something I've been thinking about more as I've been, you know, looking at pictures from the Amazon series and stuff. It is so. Um, it, it's interesting how film film has kind of, um, in many ways, kind of walked this line, right? So on the one hand, you know, Tolkien in on fairy stories talks about, and you know, he's talking about stage drama, obviously not film, but you know, he talks about the difference between just like telling stories and depicting something on stage. And one of the major things that he talks about is that, like, basically, it's how how limiting, like, how um, uh, how limiting to the imagination potentially stage productions are. This he brings this up in the context of why he doesn't think fairy tales are very are any good on stage. Because fairy tales are all about evoking the imagination, and a visual production limits the imagination. Um, because, as he points out, he said, you know, in a story, you can say, um, you know, on the table there was bread. And that's all you have to say. You just say that there was bread, right? But when you're on, you know, when you're doing a visual production, you have to choose like an actual incarnate loaf of bread. Like, what, what is it, right? I mean, is it, uh, is it a baguette, right? Is it a brown loaf? Is it matzah? What is it, right? You know, you, and you have to choose. And once you choose, you've crystallized it, 
right? And and the freedom of the reader to connect whatever they want to that, you know, mythic idea of bread is now limited, right, by what you've actually put on the screen. And so in a lot of ways, um, film film has been kind of this, uh, this really interesting boundary exercise there, right? Because on the one hand, we are imagining a visual adaptation. And so there are lots of, a lot of times when we've been kind of forcing ourselves uh, to make, to articulate those choices. You know, what kind of things would we do? Um, but at the same time, it's theoretical, right? We don't actually see it. <laughs> and so um, uh, it, a lot of it's still kind of, even after we've been discussing it, as we've been discussing season five for about 14 years, um, we uh, still, even by this point, there are a lot of things that are still just kind of floating in our imaginations. And many of us who have been working on this may kind of unbeknownst to ourselves have quite different pictures, right, of what exactly those things look like. So these kinds of opportunities at the end of the season to go through and look at actual images, right? And, um, uh, and, uh, kind of uh, see how that connects or doesn't connect or, you know, to, to, to kind of the extent to which these things kind of embody the pictures that we have in our heads. It's always a really fun, <clears throat> a really fun exercise. So I, I always, uh, I always really enjoy this. So anyway, um, uh, that's, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, uh, <clears throat> we'll see. Um, but, um, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, we should probably actually begin rather than just talking about beginning. If we talk about beginning for too long, then, you know, things get uh, kind of dangerous. I love the little stars on the map here. I totally didn't notice that for quite some time there, Marie. These are the uh, the settings we're going to be looking at later on, right? The right. particular locations, because we, we already... Uh, did this for a bunch of other places, but there are some specific spots that we wanted to to kind of talk about. Um, so we're looking at the Forest of Brethil, right, where we get a lot of the stuff with the with the people of Haleth. Nanelmoth, of course, where uh, a significant portion of the action takes place. Uh, Tarn Iluin. So we're looking at basically kind of Ladros in general and Tarn Iluin in particular. Right. I don't have any concept art for the town of, of Ladros at this point. Right. Right. Or anything. So this is just the lake setting for now. Right. Right. And then, uh, of course, uh, the uh, confluence of the River Asgar and Gellion in order to, for the stockade battle. Right. With yes. Haleth. Yeah. Okay. So those are our four specific locations that we're going to be looking for that are important spots. Of course, other places like the interior of um, uh, Nargothrond. We don't need to do location spotting for that so much as that's obviously an interior, you know, interior sets uh, that would be constructed. Um, but uh, uh, but these other spots are are uh, are pretty important. So um, and, and certainly if anyone has ideas for fan art or concept yes. art. Uh, after looking through stuff tonight, please go ahead and submit it on the boards. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, definitely. We are definitely open to depictions of the interior of Nargothrond. Yeah, definitely. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. The interior of Nargothrond, uh, I, f I find really... Oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Dave. I was just going to say, it's it's remarkable how much of the map the uh, the story is spanning this season. Yes, yes. We are um, stretching over quite a bit of it. It is true. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I guess there's not much uh, in the way of location spotting for Estelad, as it's mostly a tent city, right? Basically, I mean, are kind of a right. not necessarily that would tents, need some, but yeah, some artwork or something. Probably right. um, there's not a photograph of what Estelad would look like. Probably. Yeah, we had more of a kind of a cultural concept, basically, for Estelad rather than yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, Brian says it kind of becomes an issue for episode 11, what the geographic spread uh, of the season. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's okay because we've learned from Game of Thrones that you can easily travel uh, hundreds or even thousands of miles in a matter of hours. So um, it's not a really yeah. big concern, I think. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So don't. I don't mean to rub salt in anyone's wounds. Okay. But anyway, first, quick announcements uh, that we have our regional moots coming up, our fully hybrid regional moots. Um, our very first regional moot of the year is New England moot uh, right up here in, uh, in, in, I was about to say my backyard, but I don't want people to take that literally. Not actually my physical backyard, but up here in New Hampshire, near where I live in Durham, New Hampshire, specifically on September 25th. And then Middle Moot, um, which is going to be in Waterloo, Iowa. Iowa on October 9th. And both of those are open for uh, for registration. You can register to attend uh, in person. Uh, or, And I am still deeply dissatisfied with the phrase in person. So on-site versus online is okay. But I, it's like anytime you're using a phrase like that, it's just like it just shows that you need a word. Like we need a word for this. Our language doesn't have a really good pair of words this is a pair of words that is an importantly, uh, increasingly important concept in our society, right? To attend something digitally over the internet or to go physically to that location. And people use the word virtual, which is a terrible word to use. Like it's not at, at all what the word virtual means. Um, so like, cause you're not virtually attending. You're actually attending. You're just attending over the internet, right? Like it's something I'm actually doing, which is attending. Like, this is not a virtual broadcast. It's just a broadcast, right? It just happens to be happening over the internet. We're not having a virtual conversation. We're having a real conversation, just using the internet as a medium. So virtual is a bad word. Um, uh, in person, like, is completely vague, right? Because, of course, like, you're attending in person online, too. Like, it's, it's not, that doesn't convey the distinction that is trying to, so, you know, the best pairing that I've heard is on-site and online. Um, but even that, again, I'm not a fan because on-site is, uh, I mean, I guess we could eventually just make it a word like online is a word, right? One word, on-site. But that's clumsy and unfortunate i think we can do better so anyway i'm still i'm still searching for these, this new corporeal? see i'm a fan of corporeal but everyone started objecting right i tried using that and everyone was yelling at me like I, everyone kept kept uh, claiming i was calling them zombies or something which first of all doesn't make any sense because <laughs> zombies are perfectly corporeal right so like it's in fact that's one of the distinguishing features of zombies is that they're corporeal right so but anyway yeah no people like people were not like exactly getting offended but like i it is four syllables i mean so that's a little unwieldy it is uh, it's part of my own personal weakness is that i always find like the more syllables uh, syllables (laughs) syllables correlate with fun uh you know in my uh in my world so you know like the more syllables the more fun but uh i know that that's not necessarily true of everyone um but 
anyway, yeah. So, um, <laughs> embodied, see, yes, Nick, embodied versus disembodied. But see, again, disembodied is precisely what people were objecting to when I was like, it's not that they were objecting to corporeal. They were, it was the people who were not attending corporeally who were objecting. They're like, you know, are you, are you saying we're like disembodied? And I'm like, well, from Virginia, yes. <laughs> it's like your attendance is a disembodied attendance. You are attending, but your body is not attending. <laughs> so, yes, that's exactly true. And I, but anyway, a lot of people seem to object to that. I, I don't, I still don't see why. Like, to me, it seems fine. Like, I don't, I yeah, guess. I, but um, anyway, uh, people didn't like that. So I have no idea. Um, uh, but, um, <laughs> yeah, Stephen Cover says, tell him to grow up and deal with it. I know, like, it's be be at peace with, like, disembodied. It's kind of cool. Like, I mean, the ability to, like, attend, to, like, disembody yourself and, you know, and attend something remotely. I mean, that's like a magical power or something. Like, it sounds like one, doesn't it? I mean, it, it isn't it? So, yeah, I personally think it's pretty awesome. But, um uh, exactly, Nick. It's exactly like astral projection. You're basically Doctor Strange attending a moot is essentially what's happening. And I, like, what's where's the downside? Like, I, I don't see the problem. Maybe but. that. Maybe you know what? Maybe that was the problem. We were missing the other word, the word to describe the non non corporeal attendees. Maybe <laughs> if we use corporeal and astral. An astral, right? Exactly. Astral attendance. Right. Which, of course, technically sounds like it means uh, like, you know, from the stars. But, um, you know, I guess that would be sidereal attendance, technically, which is probably not, in fact, the case. But um, (laughs) if there's there's satellites involved, satellites are in the direction of the stars. True. That's true. That's true. They probably are actually coming from the direction of the stars. Yeah. Yeah. Or some of them, perhaps. But um, anyway, exactly. David uh, Michael Roberts on Twitch says it's like traveling in a dream, uh, like in the Notion Club papers. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, this is um, the kind of thing that we're doing with our fully hybrid regional moots is the stuff of science fiction, man. Like, it's really cool. So why not embrace it? Why not embrace it with our vocabulary? That's what I say. I'll I'll keep trying to work on this. I'll keep trying to. Uh, uh, you know, see, see if I can if I can try to uh, uh, acculturate uh, uh, people to this language a little bit more. Corporeal and astral sounds like something you could probably get away with. Go ahead we'll and see. try it in September and see where it goes. I'll see if I can sell it. <laughs> we'll see what happens. But anyway, it's going to be fun. So we got, as I say, the registration's open for both, and the um, uh, call for presentations uh, is open for uh, for both of those. Um, and yes, don't forget about our Signum Clubs program and our Signum Path program, um, uh, professional development uh, in communications, writing and presentations and emotional intelligence and all of these awesome things that help you be way better at your job, no matter what your job is. And to really help improve your career, Signum Path is a wonderful resource for that. So that is signumuniversity.org slash path. Eddie, whoa, that was not the right button I just hit. Okay, but that's where I wanted to go. Okay, so first, we are going in to locations for Season 5. And we just mentioned uh, the four places that we're going to focus on with also kind of thinking a little bit about Harad, uh, Marie, right? So we think about the frame and some of the kind of visual concepts that we have in mind um, for um, uh, for uh, for our frame down in 
Farhared. Okay, so first, this, uh, uh, go ahead, did anything you wanted to add there, Marie? Oh, no, just that, yeah, there's not going to be a slide for Harad because I don't right. have images. Um, there, it's hard, it was harder to get photos for that. Right, right, yes, yes. Um, okay, so first, the Gelian Asgard confluence. So what we're looking for is a very specific geographic feature, right? We're looking for two rivers coming together at a very a very sharp point at that junction, right? That's the first criterion. And there needs to be cliffs on both sides so that you can't get to the stockade on top from any but the landward side. Um, so this is the... Um, this is the sketch, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Tell us about the sketch. All right, so I did it, and I'm not an artist. So that's the first thing. Also, I did it in pencil, and that does not show up very well on this. Uh, so sorry, <laughs> I tried. But you know what? This is a pretty this great sketch. I, like it. I, know, I think it's a good sketch. If your handwriting were less good, mm. you could try to... it. The style of the pencil drawing is very like the kinds of sketches that Tolkien did in the margins of his manuscripts and stuff when he came to places like it has that air, doesn't it? I mean, it like that. Yes. You could, you could almost pass it off as like a lost Tolkien marginal sketch, Yes, but the, I, but I the print is too neat. It, uh, I, was yeah. I was momentarily just sorry. I'm like, wait, is that, is that? <laughs> oh, no, it's not. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It totally does. I think it could yeah, absolutely I have, I have pass. I picture handwriting. I'm used to writing on the board. So. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Tolkien had no um, such scruples. Apparently not. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> as you pointed out, the idea was to get that uh, conjunction, that confluence of the two rivers, to be a, a really um, dramatic but not ridiculous location. Mm -hmm. So like, mm -hmm. we didn't want really tall cliffs, but at yes. least tall enough that you couldn't just hop right up the bank. Right. So maybe right. 20, 30 feet tall would be fine, but they're not supposed to be like a thousand foot cliffs or anything. Right. Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's why I put the barn on there to, to kind of give it a little bit of scale so that we wouldn't think it was massive. Right. Um, but it's really hard to find rivers that look like this in the real world. So this was a challenge. Like it was easy to sketch that. Right. <laughs> Much harder to location scale that. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So um, the, uh, uh, the, Switzerland site that we have here in the black and white picture on the right. Um, the cliffs are about right. Really densely wooded, though, on top, obviously. You know, that's... Um, it, it, needs to, it needs to... It can have some trees, right? Some trees would be good. Um, I mean, I see you even put in a little, you know, a few trees down, like, sort of by the... T and that makes sense, right? That we they would certainly have clear-cut most of it so that they could build their... Um, the wall, yeah, that the, wall, wall needs, trees to... needs trees, right? And they need space to be able to have their, uh, you know, their their families and their herds and things like that. So, um, so yeah, yeah, they would uh, they would have clear cut that, um, and it would be a shame to you know clear <laughs> clear cut that forest over there. But right, we can digitally subtract things yeah. from photos, but yeah. obviously we're not going to actually clear cut any forests anywhere. <laughs> Right, right, exactly, exactly. The one uh, in Montenegro down at the bottom um, is nice. It's the uh, 
plain on top with the cliffs and the river is really not, I mean of course the downside is the rivers are too small right I mean the river's like you know what like six inches deep on the, on the one side it looks like um, you could probably escape across the Ascar in that one yeah yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, it's certainly, um, and again, that's one of the other real challenges of this, right? That the rivers have to be significant enough that, you know, there's a very significant chance of drowning if you try to if you try to escape. Not only um, swimming, but even by boat, it would be risky, right? So, um, uh, so yeah. So, but but I do like the I do like the plateau. It's a little bit. We'd want to get rid of the trees around the bottom because, of course that makes it easily climbable, right? You know, orcs could easily cl- clamber up through the trees and, and reach the top of the cliffs that way. So we've got the too many trees on top over here and too many trees at the bottom over there. But but I do like that plane concept. That really does seem to um, uh, convey, um, convey a lot of what we're looking for there. Um, and then we have uh, a couple other suggestions here. Um, I think of all of them, the one up here on the top right, the uh, the the lost dog uh, one, I think is my favorite. Um, that seems to have almost all of the elements, right? Not, it's a little deserty, right? Uh, you know, um, but as far as rivers and fairly significant looking rivers, right? Um, Good sized cliffs. Um, you know, th- those those look like kind of the perfect. It's a little hard to tell from this picture exactly how high those cliffs are, but it doesn't look that high. Um, I was actually trying to find this location. I was trying to Google Earth this this location, but I couldn't I didn't quite succeed, I think. I'm sorry. I have the Google Earth image of it um, okay. posted on the forums, but I didn't include it on the slide for you. OK, no, um, that's OK. That's OK. So are you familiar with the Flaming Gorge Dam in Wyoming? I'm not. I'm not. Okay, so they built a hydroelectric dam out there, and it is on the Green River. So mm-hmm. behind the Green River, the canyon has filled up, and it's kind of more of a lake than a river. Right. And this is, and that's in Utah, I believe. But then upstream, you're in Wyoming. So this is in the Wyoming right. part, so towards the top of the gorge. So into the gorge, it's like Grand Canyon-like cliffs right on a, a wide span of water. So it's very dramatic. And that's actually where the Kingfisher Island images is further south in that okay. same gorge. Right, um, right. But this is further to the north, so it is pretty arid and the cliffs are less dramatic. Right. And yeah. um, you're looking south in this image, I believe. Um, so okay. it is kind of turned around, but um, yeah, because the, you're the the place the photo is taken from is what has the title lost dog. And it's like a, it's not even a campground. It's a picnic site. Right. Right. So yeah. you drive down some dirt road in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, and you can take this photo. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it looked almost like a, like a trailhead or something basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 From what I was able to find on Google Earth. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, no, I, but that, I think, um, the idea of a lonely peninsula like that that really sort of stands out without, I agree, it should not be too dramatic. If it's too dramatic, it's going to be, it's just going to create the wrong sort of impression. And this isn't that kind of terrain anyway. I mean, it's mostly plains, right, um, uh, in this area. Plains and foothills, right? 
Right. I mean, this is southern Thargelion, so right across the Gelian should be, us, you know, the plains of Estelar. Right. So. Right. Exactly. So yeah. So we're definitely not going to watch. And like the um, the Iceland image, I mean, like. Iceland scenery is never not cool, right? Uh, I mean, it's just, uh, I think it's certainly the coolest terrain I've ever seen and been to in my life. Um, but I think it's actually a little too cool. Like, it's a little too dramatic. Um, mm. That mm. You know, I, I think that um, any of the, um, it's sort of like, uh, you know, we don't want a fjord here either, right? You know, that's not the kind of, thing uh, that we're looking for. Um, what I like about the lost dog image there is that it does, when you look at that from a distance, it does look like a kind of thing that, you know, wandering people, again, assuming, uh, so I'm kind of imagining the rest of the area more like green and grassy, right? Because this is more temperate than and less arid um, uh, than that part of Wyoming. But, um, you know, you're, you're kind of, People who are living all around in this area, but you're looking for a place, you know, you're you're Haldad and you're looking for a place that is going to be defensible. Right. Where can we go? Where can we find a place of refuge? Um, and so you see this, you know, you don't want to have to build a whole fortress. Right. Because, you you know, you can't. um, um it's going to be hard for you to like build an actual enclosure of everybody. Right. So you see something like this and say, Hey, look, we just need one wall, right? One wall to wall off the tip of this and the rest of it will be inaccessible. Um, but it's gotta be something that is accessible to them. Like they can easily get there and, you know, and get their families and their animals and everything inside there, um, at a, in a hurry, Right. So, uh, again, that's one of the reasons why we don't want really steep and exaggerated terrain. Right. It, it needs to be needs to be family and animal friendly, you know, enclosure that you can quickly go into. But yet something that's defensible and will keep the orcs off. Um, so I um, I really I really like that. I really like that. I think that that works. Um, I think that, that works pretty well. Um, uh just need to add some digital trees and then it'll be okay. Gr- yeah. Green it up a bit for you. Green it up a bit. Add some, add some trees. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that uh, a huge wooden palisade doesn't look really questionable as it would here. Uh, you know, on this, you'd obviously have to have, in, you know, imported those trees. Now on a river, you could import trees, right? From some distance off. Uh, so that's not impossible. But, uh, but yeah, no, it would, it would be a little bit better uh, with some trees there so that we could be, we could be clear about that. Um, that would enable us not to have to, you know, kind of explain it, right, or provide an explanation for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool, cool. No, I think that that I think that that uh, uh, I think that that works. And the palisade would just be, um, it would be primarily um, just vertical tree trunks with. Um, you know, planks inside for people to stand on, right? Um, right. So we did discuss a little bit about how that would work. And some people are saying about whether it would be straight or U-shaped or, you know, horseshoe, you know, like how would you put it? But as far as the construction, um, probably no planks because with it being uh, Neolithic pre-Bronze Age kind of culture, they probably don't have a lot of axes. So um, like actually 
tools that can turn trees into planks is pretty limited. So probably just tree trunk um, kind of stuff. And then right. the idea is that you would be able to climb up onto it. So there would be whatever the structure is, if it, it would be deep enough that you could climb up on top and there'd still right. be a defensible position. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we did definitely want. I mean, I remember we had like seen a scene on the walls, right? Fighting actually mm-hmm. on the walls. Um, so right. it's not just the kind of palisade, like, um, you know, just which is merely. Um, right. It's not you know, tree trunk standing in the ground. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's 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 got depth to it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Now that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah, Stephen Cover was suggesting that they could also have um, an earthen ramp up behind the, you know, put the palisade and then pile earth up behind it, um, which mm-hmm. would both strengthen the wall um, against pressure from outside and also enable you just to, you know, walk up uh, from inside. Um, that's uh, that would be simple. That would be simple. Right. And yeah, so if they're digging a ditch out in front and putting earth behind it. So that there's a pretty significant mismatch in height mm-hmm. between, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That works. Um, yeah, earth moving is okay. Cutting down trees is okay. Uh, woodworking. It's kind of, <laughs> and I agree. I said planks, but but yeah, it, the planks would be hard because you do as. Um, uh, Nick was pointing out, you really need a saw uh, to make planks, and they're they may have axes, but they're not going to have saws very likely. So, um, yeah. Okay. Not unless they bought it from a dwarf. Yeah. (laughs) True. True. Which in theory could have happened, but, um, okay, cool. Cool. I like it. All right. So our next site was the forest of Brethel. So here we have the, um, Again, mostly like a, a sort of a feel and concept, right, of the Forest of Brethel. So I guess my first question when I'm thinking about this, you know, like a, a birch forest or a beech forest uh, or a mixed forest, um, like Acadia, Maine, where I... That's like the position on the slide for places I've been in on vacation recently, Murray, is like officially, that's like the upper left-hand corner is <laughs> the Olson family vacation era area of these slides. We just went to Acadia last last summer. Um, okay. That was our uh, RVing uh, uh, vacation during the pandemic. Uh, you know, <laughs> how to stay isolated with your family and yet uh, uh, go around a bit. So uh, you know, wilderness RVing uh, during the pandemic was fun. And we went to Acadia. We went to Maine and, and, and went to Acadia, which is, which is lovely. Um, so I guess my question is, how, how light do we want the Forest of Brethel to be? Because, of course, that's one of the things that you can see right away um, in the uh both the beach and the birch forests is that there it's a it's a very sort of light and bright feel to it right and i kind of like that for you know there's a lot of dark woods in in the earth right whether it's in taranufu and slash murkwood or whether it's um you know in nun elmoth and stuff we get a lot of and even of course the girdle of melian makes doriath itself you know at least spooky if not physically dark um so um having a nice piece of wood that is uh, a little brighter i think is is kind of nice um climate wise 
Um, I think that maybe we should save something like Acadia. Um, I mean, Acadia is northern, right? I mean, it's Maine. So um, what I could imagine doing is using something like Acadia for um, like the forests around, like in in Ladros, basically, for, um, you know, some kind of uh, those woods up there, I would expect uh, to be like that. You're not, I mean, again, Acadia is not exactly in the mountains either, but again, nowhere in Maine is exactly flat either. So it's all very hilly and, uh, and, and there are some, there are some mountains through there. There are, I mean, Dorthonian is pretty much pines. Um, yeah. So it's a little more mountainy than Maine even. And yeah. there is a pine forest in Maine, uh, not yeah. Acadia maybe, but there are right. pine forests in Maine, of course. Right. The, the, yeah, the question here was uh, what types of trees? <laughs> because right. in Tolkien's world, everything is on the type of tree. <laughs> oh, yeah. You do yeah, raise absolutely. a good point about the lighting situation and what it tells us about the forest. I, I want the forest of Brethel to be a good home for the people who live there. So, I think light and bright is good. Light and bright, I think, is good. And the other thing about a mixed hardwood forest, you know, like so many of our northern New England forests, is that. They're also very dense, like, you you know, hard to walk through often. I mean, really dense underbrush and uh, um, you don't get any of the. I mean, like just looking at the the beach forest picture from the Carpathians there again, like look how far you can see. You can almost never see that far uh, through the trees uh, in, you know, New England mixed hardwood forests, uh, say. So, again, it's kind of closer forest. Mm-hmm. And I think especially for the kinds of scenes that we are talking about, you know, the kinds of, um, uh, I think that it would be nice to have something kind of, of course, I'm also thinking ahead, right? I'm thinking about, um, cause of course when we think about the forest of Brethel, we also have to prepare ourselves for the, for the Turin story, a lot of which is going to take place in the forest of Brethel, right? So we need to make sure, you know, so looking ahead to what we're going to want for Brethel, we're going to want, um, we're going to want to be thinking about the Haladin under Brondir, right, eventually down the road with Turin coming in. We're going to want to think about um, uh, even the time with uh, Turin among the outlaws, right, um, right after he leaves Doriath. So all of that stuff is going to be happening in the greater Brethil region here. Um, so we need to be kind of picturing all of that stuff as well. Um and I have to admit, I kind of like the idea of a light, bright, cheerful-looking forest. Uh, there's a there's a kind of irony uh, to that with Turin, which um, uh, kind of appeals to me, right? Especially thinking of the role that Brethil plays for Turin, especially at the end, right? You know, his period of settling down into apparent happiness with his new wife, right? Um and that brief period of what looks like it is and he believes it is going to be, right? You know, a, a, a bright, happy, cheerful <laughs> retirement. Um, so I, 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 it works for me. I like that. Um, I'm not sure between the birch and the beach. Right. So again, back to the names of trees. Uh, mm-hmm. Brethel is supposed to mean birch um, in that that's how it's translated in the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. But when Tolkien gave the translations of Thimberthal, um, 
the endwave. He listed it alternately as slender birch or slender beech. So <laughs> at least at one point he had considered the word to either mean one and then switch it to the other, or it's a generic word that means birch trees and beech trees, and we just have one name for it. I, right. I'm not sure which way he was thinking there. Right. The, the um, Neldoreth is of course a beech forest, and that's right across from Brethel. Um, but I believe the name Neldoreth is focused on that one tree that has the really large tree that Luthien gets imprisoned in, uh, Herolorn or whatever. Like, I think the whole forest is named after that particular tree, right. more so than that Neldoreth means beaches. Right, right. Yeah, so, no, I, I, I think so. That, that makes so sense you to me. probably justify either choice with the etymology. Right, right. Um, probably. Probably. I think, I think birches is where I would lean. Um, Yeah, as you say, you can uh, the, certainly of the two of them, that's the easier one to justify etymologically, um, and I think it it certainly um, it certainly is good for a, 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 a light, bright forest. Yeah, yeah. As Julie Dix says, yeah, yeah. look at the bright, happy forest. Nothing bad could possibly happen here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that's great for Bretho, especially considering all the tragedies that occur there. So, um, yeah, yeah. I think that's good. Um, birch leaves turn yellow in the autumn? Yes. Right? I'm sorry. I don't think I included a, a fall photo here. A fall but yes, scene, yeah. Yellow. I'm, I'm pretty with, sure. I'm pretty sure they're both right. yellow. Right. Yeah. But, of course, I, the reason I'm thinking of that, of course, uh, I was pretty sure Actually, that was true. Brown. Does it turn brown? Eventually. Does it turn yellow first? Maybe it's yellow first, then brown. I think it's yellow first. Yeah. Okay. I think it's yellow first. Um, but um, but anyway, I like it because, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, a little like quasi Malornish effect uh, with the, you know, the silver, uh, the silver birch and the yellow leaves. Uh, it's not the full Malorn effect, obviously, but. I was thinking same thing. I, I like the. I like the sort of the, I, I, I think, you know, it's kind of a nice sort of illusion a little bit. Mm-hmm. Little, little kind of foretaste in a sense of the greater glory that is to come later. Um, so yeah, I like that. Um, and it's close to Doria. So, you know, like sort of a, a connection to an elven wood uh, isn't inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there's um yeah, I think there. Are, I, don't, I don't really know much about this at all, but there, there are. Um, are there many birch forests in America? There are more of them in Europe, aren't there? Um. So I mean, there's they're in Europe and America, and there's different types of birch trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see birches more in the northern states like New England than you would in the southern areas because right. as you get further south, uh, they're susceptible to pests. Right. So they generally have to be treated a bit to to survive in other places or be a hardier version or something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, birch trees are not super common in the southeastern US, but definitely in New England 
and right, and then right. Mid Atlantic. Yeah, but uh, but up here I've I mean I see birch trees. I've got some birch trees in my backyard, but they're rarely just like a forest of birch oh, trees. Oh, yeah. Like so. Sorry, I understand your question now. I was like, yeah. have you not seen a birch tree? <laughs> no, I've seen them. Yeah, yeah, but like never like that. Like never just like birch trees as far as the eye can see. Yes. Basically. So correct. So um, how like there's the mixed hardwood forest in Maine. Mm-hmm. That's more typical. Yeah, that's that's that exactly. You, you have that. Um, in Europe, you get the whole forest of birches. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it, it something. It has to do with um, old growth forest versus mm-hmm. younger forest type of thing. Right. 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 Makes sense. But yeah, no, that's so you, good. You're, you're, you're completely right. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Good. <laughs> yeah. Feeling bark. Right. Yeah. No, no, we have them. We have them here. Uh, but again, I've got like three out of the, you know, 500 trees, you know, in the, in the woods behind my house there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the ones in New England tend to be the white bark. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so the silver birch obviously is a little silver, silverier. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Now, I like this concept for Breath Hill. I think that that's, and again, judging by the name, that seems to be the kind of thing that Tolkien had in mind uh, with the forest of Breath Hill. So, um, and it's interesting too. I mean, even just the way in which it is, I mean, the forest of Breath Hill is from the beginning. I mean, just going back to the map for a second, the way in which it, it's like, a, you know, a, a, a forest suburb of Doriath, right? I mean, it's right next to Doriath. And so, and Doriath, of course, is one of the, with the, especially with the girdle in play, right? I mean, it's like this, the mysterious elvish place, right? It's like the proto Lothlorien. It's the, it's the, you know, it is like crossing the mysterious boundary into fairy, right? There's so much, there's, there's more of that there with Doriath than with, you know, the other hidden elven, uh, places like Gondolin and Nargothrond, but there's not like a magical boundary to those places. It's not like a fairy tale, crossing the boundary in a fairy tale and finding yourself in another realm in, in quite the same way as with Doriath, right? And so to, to have the Forest of Brethil be, it has a kind of a special, I've always felt that it has a kind of a special um, kind of mythic place in that way because it's, like, it's adjacent to that. It's like right next door to the most magical, mysterious, and even terrifying elvish forest, you know, in all of Middle-earth. Um, and so uh, I think having it be, um, uh, you know, this uh, uh, this kind of bright, cheerful, and refreshing place, I think is really is really fun. I think that that works really well. Cool. Okay. Nan Elmoth. Okay, trees taller and thicker and darker than in other places. The sun doesn't find its way down to the forest floor. This is the kind of forest we get a little more often in Middle Earth, as we, you know. Um, so, first of all, Tarnufuan and Mirkwood, we know are functionally identical, right? Indeed, like borrowed the one from the other originally when Tolkien wrote The Hobbit. Um, what would we, how would we, this seems to me the, the first thing to kind of try to identify here, right? Is like, what's the difference in feel between Nun Elmoth and a place like Mirkwood? Because I feel like Mirkwood, through The Hobbit, I think that 
you know, most readers have a, a sort of a clearer visual picture of Mirkwood, right? And, and at least certainly, even if you don't have a visual picture, you have like a, a conceptual feel for Mirkwood and what it's like, right? This uh, really dense, tangled, can't see very far, um, you know, completely dark at night because you can't see the stars or moon or anything, right? Um, uh, sort of creepy, echoey forest, Um Nan Elmoth, what makes Nan Elmoth different? Um, what makes it... Um, uh, so I think the trees being huge would be one thing that seems to me to really fit um, with Nan Elmoth. The sense of antiquity, right? The sense of, like, you are entering, like, the ancient, ancient world. And it seems strange to talk about the ancient, ancient world in this stage when the first age of the sun has only just begun, right? Isn't everything kind of ancient already? Um, but, I mean, that I think seems to me to be part of um, Aeol's whole shtick, right? From the beginning, when we had Aeol be the primary, when we chose Aeol for the primary spokesperson for the Avari who didn't want to go, uh, along with uh, um, with Orame uh, back in season one, um, you know, we want to stay here and for things not to change, right, was his, uh, was kind of his thing from the beginning. And so having a, a sense of that spirit lingering around Nan Elmoth as well, especially since Nan Elmoth, of course, as we, rem- as we have, you know, discussed is, is special for two ways. It's been taken over by Aeol, but it was originally special as the meeting place of Melian and Thingol, right? And so that already gives it a kind of commemorative sort of feel, right? Like a um, a preservation of memory kind of thing, which Aeol kind of takes and sort of twists, right? Essentially, is what we what we kind of see in his um, you know kind of the magic that he that he does there. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Right, that that makes it primordial in a way that other places aren't. Um, right. In this place where the world is so new and young. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, because it's there's something almost um, almost artificially primordial, if you see what I mean, right? Not just primordial in the sense that it happens to be something that's preserved from the most ancient times, but like something that is like going to remain just the same as in the very ancient times, darn it, right? Which is kind of, gives it a different atmosphere, if you see what I mean. Um, yes, that very elven, desperate yes. sense of preservation. <laughs> like, we will preserve this. Exactly. Exactly. And, from my dead fingers. <laughs> exactly. And with Aeol, it's got a real edge to it, right? I mean, a different edge than like with Goadriel. Uh, you know, Goadriel or Elrond's version of that same thing, you know, that we see and are familiar with in, in the Third Age. Um, but yeah, or or what we see Targon building in Gondolin, right? It's, it's um, there's a different sense. I mean, it's not just that he's trying to preserve something different than they are, right? Targon is clinging to his memories of Elven Tyrion, and that, so that's obviously very different in, in feel and atmosphere and focus uh, than what Aeol is clinging to. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's his is just, it's, it's a darker, meaner, um, uh, more, um, 
I don't know what. Um, uh, I don't know. It's just got that. It's got that uh, uh, that that cutting edge to it. So the if I can't have it, no one can. Yes. Not just I'm going to preserve this forever and ever, but the very possessive side of it as well. Right. Exactly. Also with the edge of and if you try to it's not just if you try to mess with this, I'll come after you. But if you even try to like look at this, I, I'm gonna like it's it's it is mine to such an extent that I don't even you know, you can't even see it. Uh much less mess with it. Like forget about messing with it. You can't even see it. Um so I really like the um uh like the the Norway pine forest image. There's a lot to like there um with the sort of, you know, the the I mean it's a really cool image with the dark and the mist and uh and it looks really spooky. My one problem with something like this for Nan Elmoth is it, it's a little too open. Like you can see too far, right? It doesn't have that it needs to have a kind of closed in effect, I think. Um which an old pine forest like that tends not to have because you've got these really straight, uh, you know, bowls of the trees and you can see between them usually a fair distance. And the undergrowth is usually not very thick uh, either in forests like that often. No, it's not thick, but the, the pine needles do mute sound. Yes, so that's it, true. It has a very unique quality. That right. The, the forest is hushed just by nature of being this kind of forest. So, I mean, there would be a, a interesting twist to it, but I, I agree if what you want is closed in so you can't see where you're going, then that we would need something a little more tangled. I think a little more I tangled. I, I don't know. I, I kind of, I like the idea, like the, 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 you make a good point, Maria, about the, the sort of the way the sound gets sort of muted there. That, that would seem to be very appropriate for uh, Ale. With like the silent servants and that sort of thing. It's like I feel mm-hmm. like I feel like the the dark the dark tangled forest you can't see through gets done over and over again. Um, right. Um, so you know it could be cool to do something a little different where maybe you got a little bit of visibility in front of you, but but you you know like you still you don't know what sort of is around the next corner behind the tree, and also you can't hear anything, or maybe you can hear too easily you can hear like the pin drop or something i don't know or and but i could see how it would be a different kind of level of creepiness if you could see through but all you could see was like a mist like this like so you know from the outside you see the trees and you can see and so it's all it's almost not exactly and you don't want to be inviting but it's like you could see and you can almost think you can you know it might be a little bit tempting to kind of go in and see like well you know i wonder i wonder what's in there um, it doesn't have to look forbidding or like, uh, it doesn't have to look like a fence, right? It doesn't have to look like something you'd need a machete to get through. Um, if the effect were, like, basically, if it were physically quite easy to walk into the forest, then all of the inhibitions to walking in would be immaterial, right? It would just be like the feeling of the place, um, and so if we if we just wanted to convey spooky, that might be a really interesting way to do it, actually, because certainly that kind of a force. I mean, again, that's a really spooky picture. Right. I mean, when you're just kind of seeing um, uh, just nothing but these really tall trees through the mist. And of course, the the whole 
um, the way that you get all those like layers of, uh, you know, dead, broken branches sticking off all the way down pines also gives it this kind of creepy skeletal uh, look as well. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of talking me into it, Dave, I think. It's the it's the kind of place where if, if something was coming for you, you'd see it, but you wouldn't. All you would see is this uh, the shadow through the mist. Right. And exactly. You'd be just watching it. You just watching it coming towards you and just being like, uh, what is that? Right. It would be a great place for like, uh, you know, moving airs and swirling mists and shadows in the mists and uh, uh, creepy and uncertain sounds that you're not sure that you heard and shapes that you're not sure that you actually saw and uh, um, uh, not knowing. And of course, once you passed into it, as um, uh, Stephen was saying, uh, you know, being able to kind of confused um, to confuse directions would um, also be really cool. I mean, once if if you had a whole forest like that, especially on relatively flat ground, you know, once you get a little ways into it, it's going to look exactly the same in every direction, right? And so that um, that can create an even uh, an even more interesting, perhaps, kind of forbidding effect, um, and. Um, getting lost in mazes, right? And, and led astray and, uh, and eventually entrapped. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nick says the height of those trees is indeed very intimidating. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Um, yeah. Steven says the mist makes me think you could walk in one straight direction and end up walking out exactly back along the route you used to enter. <laughs> yes. Depending on what Ale wanted to do with you, right? You could end up, you know, walking straight back out and uh, find yourself, you know, so that you've just been repelled, uh, essentially. Um, or, you know, you could be led, uh, uh, you could be led into a snare of some kind. I like that. Okay. All right. You've talked me into it. And it's different. I mean, it is. And, and that that Nen Elmoth should look and feel different from other forests is a really good reason to not have the whole like dense tangle and wall of trees and brush that, um, I mean, again, remember the, the gateway to Mirkwood, right. That Bilbo and the dwarves go through. It's, I mean, it's like this solid wall with this arched gate in the middle of it. Right. Um, uh, and so not having that kind of, um, um, as you say, Dave, there there are a couple forests that might be like that, where you're trying to get in, but you have to like look for a spot <laughs> that you can get between the trees and get in uh, at all. Um, that's a kind of thing that gets done uh, in Middle Earth quite a bit, but this is a different kind of creepy. And I, th- I, um, I think, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. If you like that, we can go with it. Alana did mention though that there's temperate rainforests which would still have the tall trees, but also have a lot more fern on the ground. So you could still have some of the like mm. tangled vines and moss and fern underbrush with tall trees in a combination. And misty would be normal in a temperate right. rainforest. Right, it would. It would. Yeah. If, if, you're, if you like this, but aren't quite sure that you want to go that way. Because I, I agree we don't want to do Mirkwood and Tarnafuan and this and Nendungorthub all exactly yeah. the same. All exactly the same. Like, yeah. What yeah. every single creepy forest, the same exact place in your world. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, 
Right. Since our budget is unlimited, we can have lots of different kinds of forest for all of these different kinds of things. Um, but no, the more I think about it, the more this idea is growing on me. To have it be a forest which is only intimidating, like where the only obstacles are like spiritual, basically, right? You know, um, you don't want to go into Nan Elmoth, not because it's hard, um, not because it's difficult. You can just stroll into Nan Elmoth. It might, in, you know, from a from a terrain perspective, it might be perfectly inviting to stroll into Nan Elmoth, um, but it's not about the terrain, right? The difficulty in it is not about the terrain. So, um, uh, I think it. Do, the more I think about it, the more I feel like it does convey much more of what we're looking for. I'm, I'm imagining, right, the scene at the beginning of the uh, uh, of the Nan Elmoth episode with um, uh, of the Esterlad episode, right, when we had. Um, uh, what's his name? Amlach uh, uh, vanishing into uh, into Nan Elmoth. Um, so imagining, you know, the the men riding past the edge of the forest, right, as they're heading down towards Estelad. Um and you know, it's the middle of the day, and you're looking at this open, you know, pine forest, and to sh- to have it would be interesting to be able to sort of see um, the difference between like what does not look like your prototypical forbidding forest, right? It does not look like the picture, you know, the pictures of Mirkwood you have in your head. It doesn't look like, um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't look anything. It just, it looks like a nice, easy forest, like an obvious place to camp, right? Uh, if you just, but, but yet to make it clear that the men are completely spooked, by this are like totally freaked out about this and don't want to get any closer to that forest uh, than they can. Like the, just the, the kind of um, discrepancy there builds, I think exactly the kind of mystery that we would want there to be about Nan Elmoth. So the more I think about it, the more I like that. Um, maybe even just like no underbrush at all, just like a nice thick carpet of pine needles, basically that you could easily walk across and, um, um, yeah, no, walking to Nan Elmoth is really easy. Walking out is what's hard, right? Um, and having it just be um, uh, totally creepy. I like that. I think that this, um, um, I think that that, I think that that works. I think that that works. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, the uh, Stephen cover was suggesting that the uh, Yakushima forest there on the left um, really looks like, uh, you know, an end house or something, uh, which uh, I, I agree. Uh, it looks fairly entish. Uh, I can easily see um, uh, I can easily see an ent uh, being around in that forest. Um, it's a little too green and wholesome, I think. More Fangorn. A little more Fangorn, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. More Fangorn than 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 Nan Elmoth. Yeah. Um, cool, cool. All right, Tarn Iluin. Okay, so Tarn Iluin, and this is again primary. We don't. Um, so the. Um, uh, yeah. Um, the primary action around Tarn Iluin is going to be with, uh, with you know, its role in the Turin story later on is really kind of where it 
Um, uh, no, I'm thinking of the other thing. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Other, yeah. That's another body of water. That's this another body different of body of water. Yes. Is uh, where Barahir's going to hang out with his Where Barahir's going to hang out. Yes, exactly. And yes. in this season, it's the um, meeting place, the tryst for Ignar and Andra. Right. Right. How high are the mountains in Ladros, do we think? We made them very high when we talked we them about very... them last time. Um, okay. We picked the Altai region of Siberia for Dorthonian, and it's quite high. I forget okay. the elevations, but... Okay. So this up here in the top left, which, by the way, deviates from the Olsen family vacation trend. We've not been to Siberia on a family vacation yet, um, <laughs> just for the record. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, have you been to any of these places? I have not. Awesome. Actually, that's not true. I have been to Snowdonia. So well, I don't know that I've been to those been lakes in particular. Yeah, this is on the wrong side of the slide. Yeah, exactly. That was just a, a brief misplacement there. So, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Well, I mean, the, that picture on the top left, I think of all of them, I think my favorite lake is the, uh, uh, Egypt Lake in the bottom left. I really, I find that really striking, especially as a, um, that looks more like my mental picture of a tarn, basically, you know, this like high mountain lake, basically. Um, but, uh, so I really... Um, I really love that picture. Um, but for the setting of, um, you know, the climactic scene with Andreth and Ignor, it's kind of hard to beat that top left picture, um, you know, in the Altai region. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty nice, especially with the cold and the snow, right? Um, as she's going to get left in the snow. Right. The the idea is that in her story, we're going to see the changing of the seasons mm-hmm. because her romance with Ignor is over the course of the whole year. So we're going to end right. it in winter and snow because, of course, we are. Of course. Um, yeah. So yeah. It, it is important to consider what these places look like in different seasons. The, right. And, and important how... to consider the passing of time. Uh, the, mm-hmm. I mean, to mm-hmm. be reminded of the passing of time being an important motif in their relationship. Right. Exactly. Um, the the picture from California is not necessarily meant as a that should be the lake. It was suggested because of that description that right. Tolkien wrote that had the standing stones coming out like um, bare bones. So the request was, could we think of a way to do like ribs of the earth coming up around the lake in some way? Mm-hmm. And the answer mm-hmm. is probably not in real life, but sure, we'll draw it in. <laughs> right, exactly. I think some uh, some some CG bare bones of ancient Earth-like standing stones uh, is probably what we yeah. need to do there. Yeah, but that was as there just a reminder that we could be adding some details to these pictures to to make them as dramatic as you'd like. Yeah. The thing with the Siberia picture. Yes, there's going to be snow in the wintertime, but it's not necessarily going to be a dramatic season change in that those are evergreen trees. There's still going to be evergreen trees in the winter. 
So with Egypt Lake, the reason you're seeing all those yellow trees is those are larches, mm -hmm. which are, um, I mean, technically they're they're needles like like a pine tree, but they turn yellow in the fall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're deciduous needle trees. I don't know. I forget. I'm not doing very good with memory right now as to what <laughs> that is called. When I'm more awake, I know trees a little better, I guess. Uh, right. But the point in the fall. Right. Right. I'm trying to decide so the changing seasons. And this is in yeah. Alberta. So they, they do have snow there as well. Right. Right. This is the Canadian Rockies here. Yeah, exactly. Um I, I wonder if the Canadian Rockies again it's a it's a it's a wonderful image, but I'm wondering if it's almost too much mountain. You know what I mean? Like I don't know. I guess there's a lot of mountain uh, up in it's the highlands of Dorthonian. Yeah. yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, well, I don't know if you know what I mean by too much Based mountain. On, I do. Um, because it's, you can be highlands and have rocky terrain without it being like a giant mountain popping up next to you. And a whole um, like enormous, range of right. giant mountains as far as the eye can see basically right, right. Um, he describes a lonely moor around it and the bare bones of the earth and it's birch trees again um, so I have to imagine that what Tolkien was picturing was probably closer to the whale stuff right right yeah uh, so yeah I mean that, you want a less massive mountain range uh, Snowdonia is less massive than the Canadian the Canadian Rockies. Rockies, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, that's. Um, I think that's the other thing that I meant by perhaps too much mountain, too much like the Rockies, right? Too too sharp and uh, uh, and craggy and, um, uh, yes, yes. Um, I think I'd always pictured um Dorthonian as more like um uh more like Scotland or Wales uh in terms of terrain than like the Rockies, certainly. Um yeah, I mean it's hard to avoid the fact that Wales we know to be closer to Tolkien's own uh, well, not just to his imagination, to his experience, right? I mean that's you know, he uh did not he was not a very widely traveled person. Tolkien wasn't. So, um, he'd you know, been to Switzerland though. He'd so been he to Switzerland. That's mountains. that. Exactly. That was like his big mountain trip. Right. And that's where the Misty Mountains <laughs> scenes come from. You know, of course, especially in The sure. Hobbit. Um, absolutely. Sure, yeah. So he had enough experience to know what he was talking about when he described the trip over the Misty, over the Misty Mountains. But, um, but yeah, certainly I think when he's envisioning landscape, I think, Something like Snowdonia is probably, yeah, with more deciduous trees, probably, probably more appropriate. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking, though, the changing, so I think I kind of like the idea of an evergreen tree beneath the snow because it's not just the human perspective, right? It's also the elf perspective that we're showing. It's the tension between the elf and human perspective, 
right? So while if they were to be meeting beneath an evergreen tree, right, the seasons will be clearly changing around them. I mean, it will be easy to tell from the terrain, not just the snow, but from the rest of the terrain, um, the difference between spring and summer and fall and then winter. Um, but the idea of having, like, the tree that they're next to um, be like the elf, right? Be, you know, the, the tree is unchanging, right? And the seasons are changing around it, but it is there. Um, is kind of a fun way to kind of contain the tension between, you know, his world and her world, where we're kind of seeing both, you know, at the same time. And that's kind of what this episode is, right? The two of their worlds kind of coming together and uh, uh, not entirely... Um, not entirely mixing. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm tempted. I'm tempted by Siberia, but I, it's hard to say no to Snowdonia. I mean, that picture at the bottom, I mean, look at the ribs of the earth right there. You know, like you can, you can kind of, there it is not quite standing stones, but you know, getting there. A, you know, uh, a lonely moor around it. Yep, yep. It um, it could work. Brian says. Plus, Snowdonia just sounds like it belongs in fantasy fiction, which is totally true. Uh, hard to improve on that. Um, yeah, and all the photos I've seen of Snowdonia definitely look like they walked off the pages of fantasy fiction. <laughs> so, yeah, like, yeah, definitely. No, no lie in that name. Definitely, exactly. Yeah, Nick, that was exactly what I was reaching for before. I think we want older mountains for Dorthonian, is what I'm thinking. Like, you know, um, we've got the newer volcanic mountains up by Angban, but I'm thinking for Dorthonian, I'm thinking of older-looking mountains. Uh, than the Rockies. Okay. Well, much as I am tempted by the, uh, this, this is just a wonderful image. Um, I love, as far as like single images, I love that picture. Uh, you know, that picture is really great for Tyne Island for me, but I think Snowdonia is probably safer as an actual location. It probably works better as a location. Okay. Now, Harad, um, we're, uh, so let's talk for a minute about what we picture, because I know it's hard to find images of exactly what we're looking for here. <clears throat> but what we're wanting is the picture that I've had, and, you know, Nick, you can tell me if uh, you think that this is correct. Um, I know Nick is here with us, too. River Valley. Right. So I'm thinking like fertile river valley with more arid, with with the lands like further around it, more air. So it looks like this, um, you know, almost almost um, almost Egyptian. Right. In the sense of like the, you know, the 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 fertile channel around the river uh, and then drier lands uh, around it on either side to give the sense of, uh, uh, you know, that this this place is like a kind of oasis, right? This is the, um, 
you know, the, the obvious kind of civilization center of this whole area, the kind of place that you can easily imagine. You can see why people would have settled down and constructed a city here, you know, at the very, very earliest stages of civilization. Um, uh, that's definitely the area that I'm thinking. Um, we wanted this to be on the coast, so it's... But we also... Didn't we Didn't we want a, a kind of a cliff? We wanted to... We had a sort of a split level effect, right? We had the <clears throat> the lower town and then yes. we had the, the higher up part. Yes. So there's a there's the river coming down to the sea and there it, the palace is on a high point and right. the temple is across the city from it. So you, you can have shots looking from the palace to the temple or from the temple to the palace. Right. The so we have we have a kind of opposition there. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah so right. Two levels for sure. And um, walls and, and such. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Really, really old walls. Yes, the idea is that this place has been constantly inhabited for over three thousand years. That's right. And that's right. There are real life places in the Mediterranean like that. Yes. Um, like Cadiz in Spain is about mm-hmm. that age, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, I forget. There's also a city on, I believe, the north coast of Africa that's similarly ancient. It's you know that's not Carthage, but is from that time frame. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, forget what which what it's called. So like there's there are real life places that have been continuously inhabited for a really really long time and on the coast like that. And so we could model it off of some of those. But the problem is there's still inhabited so they're all now modern cities right. <laughs> um, so <laughs> photographing them is a little <laughs> right right we'd have to uh do some uh some 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 heavy cgi effects to uh uh to Turn use that kind of thing the ancient right. uh, version yeah right <clears throat> right and uh, uh so on the uh, images that we have here are ideas for um specific um kind of features to kind of capture what we're looking for for some of the interior things so we've got the kind of uh assyrian bas relief right that like we have over there on the right hand side um so you're imagining this is like the kind of style of the the kind of the carvings that are still visible on the the walls of the temple right so we were talking a little bit before about artwork and what to include or not include and um I'm not sure exactly what the religion of these people was when they were Sauron worshippers, but um, it was thought if the mouth of Sauron is kind of a nod to Ferenguethel in -hmm. in the frame this season, then Mm -hmm. it would be nice if there was some imagery in the temple associated with lions or tigers to be a nod to Tevildo. Right, right. Um, Like, it wouldn't be a direct correlation thing, but just enough to be there. And it would be something you could innocently have. Like, it doesn't mean, like, we are the evil, evil cult. Just because you have a lion on, like, lions are on everything. Sure. (laughs) Why wouldn't you put lions in your art, right? (laughs) Who doesn't like lions? Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, No, I like that. The idea, like, the, the sort of the memory of, like, the sort of, you know... Sauronic pantheon, right? We've, with, as you say, with uh, throwing the um, priestly tradition. I mean, we can even have the, the, um, like the the regalia, right? The 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 garb of the mouth of Sauron could be reminiscent of Thuringwethel's cloak uh, and that kind of thing. 
Exactly. Something that would tie in visually without explicitly stating it right. because we're not going to go around and be like, see, see, this means that this is associated with... Right. But in the art seemed a good place for it. Um, whether or not people like this particular style of art is something can be discussed, but I wanted an example of what would it look like to have lions on the temple. So, like yeah. that. If you were yeah, a Syrian. Like that. Like, like that. If you were a Syrian, <laughs> right. And I, you know, stylistically, um, I don't dislike the Assyrian style for, you know, some things like that. I mean, I think that it, I, th I think that it could work. I mean, it's not, well, I don't know. It, I mean, I think, I, I, I guess I was th sort of imagining something vaguely Phoenician, right? Since we're talking about a seacoast. I get something sort of vaguely Carthaginian, uh, essentially in its in in, in style. Um, so, um, okay, I don't know, uh, but um, but I think it works. I think it works, and yeah. So we get we get we get cats, we get wolves, right? It's all good. Who doesn't like cats and wolves and maybe bats, right? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, doesn't have to look creepy. Um, we can't have giant spiders right. because that's too, scre that's that's too creepy. That's too creepy. over the roof totally doesn't look creepy no matter what not, you do. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Perfectly benevolent bats uh, and wolves. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, yeah. No, I think that's good. Um, I've never seen an anti-elephant gate like that, but... That's actually you, a really good idea. You will have to ask Nick where he got that image from. <laughs> That's, uh, but I can see that. Like you want to, like, how do you keep elephants from ramming your gates? That's a, that's a method. That's a method. Um, interesting. So like the, uh, like, so the, the city gates essentially could mm -hmm. look something like this. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That's cool. And it's okay to have something like that. That's, that's not going to be too imposing. Because I, mean, I know we're trying to make it look like the happy, friendly city. Happy, friendly city. But again, it's a happy, friendly city that survived for thousands of years. So, I right. mean, so it will have seen... Exactly. The gates can be standing open. But it would have seen plenty of war. Um, mm -hmm. You do have to get the impression. Like, we don't want it to be like the happy, innocent, untouched city that could get ravaged at any second, right? Like, there needs to be the sense of, like, this is, you know, the remnant of an ancient power, uh, you know, um, uh, maybe this used to be the center of a, you know, a small little empire of its own, you know, like, at some point in its history, it probably was, you know, like, that um, seems to seems to me to fit with the the kind of historical flavor of this city as we're imagining it. Like, yes, it is happy and friendly now in its culture and its practices and its atmosphere and it's, you know, the peace with which it, you know, in which it lives. And, um, but, um, but yeah, it definitely doesn't have to look like, I mean, it, it certainly would have seen war in the past. So, Yeah. Yeah, and exactly, Nick, the societies that now sell them elephants might once have used them on them. Certainly so. Um, certainly so. Um, interesting. Brian says, China is one of the few places in the world where bats are regularly depicted as benevolent. So there we go. Maybe we need to uh, look to Chinese art for examples of non-creepy bats. 
see what we can see what we can come up with for the uh, the non creepy bat uh, uh, concept. So yeah, but cool. All right, so we've got some some sets now too. So we're thinking about this is the uh, this is the stockade hall within the stockade within the Halloween stockade, right? Um, yeah, I think I was kind of vaguely picturing something um, kind of Norse, basically. I was thinking of like Icelandic long holes and things that um, that I saw during our Iceland trip. Something a little bit more like the bottom right sketch um, mm-hmm. uh, than more than the, the Native American longhouses. Um, mostly because, well, it could work, but I, I feel like um, the sense that we want the reason I feel a little bit resistant to something more um, more hide based right like a a, a, you know, a more a more hide based house is that seem, visually seems to convey I'm not saying that Hide houses like that are necessarily temporary things. They could stand for a really long time. But it looks and feels more temporary, if you see what I mean. Um, whereas something like made from logs looks... Because the, the sense that I would want to have here is that these people are putting down roots, right? That's kind of what's happening here. Like, they've, they've come to this... I mean, this is the, the story of their entry into Beleriand and them carving out a place for themselves and then them being driven out of it by the orcs, right? But um, there needs to be a... Uh, I, I think that the, when the orcs are coming in and attacking, there needs to be this sense of... Um, and, uh, you know, we have to fight for what we have built. Like, this land is ours now, and we've, you know, we've 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 put down these roots, and we've built, you know, we've built this settlement, and, and we're going to fight to defend it. Um, and log structures seem to me to visually kind of convey that more, if you see what I mean uh, by that. I don't know if that, uh, if that's something that makes sense, but. Um, yeah. I believe that at least one of those is bark. not Yes. Hide. Yeah. Is that, but that's the, it, the top left one is bark, isn't it? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I was pretty sure. I was looking at the bottom left one when I was talking, because I think that's hide, but I'm not sure. Maybe that's bark too, but. I, I honestly don't know the origin of that photo. <laughs> yeah, Nick, yeah. Where the lower left is too, Nick. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> but still, I, I again, I want like again, you want a sense of solidness pictures. is what mm-hmm. I want is what I'm looking right. for. And bark, right, bark is also not a long lasting material, so it would have right. to be replaced. Exactly. And the others, they're thatch that needs to be replaced too, but that doesn't make it feel temporary. That just is maintenance you have to do. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. Thatch, I, I th- thatch, I could definitely live with, um, uh, for roofing materials, but yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I do. I do. I do know that there can be, um, things, uh, like Mongolian yurts, um, which are essentially solid long-term structures, though they incorporate hides and things. I, I, I know that that's true. I'm just talking about, um, as I say, the the visual effect of it, right? Something really solid and, um, you know, 
just that it just screams out, "This is built to last, and we're here to stay." Is kind of what I'm uh, uh, what I'm thinking about. Nick says we may end up overdoing yurts. It's true. Um, we already have yurts, right? Uh, we've already uh, we've already had splendidly painted elvish yurts, uh, which is kind of awesome. Uh, and I still really love that idea. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. But, uh, but I think, um, I love the idea of a, of a long house, uh, though, like that, like one, uh, big hall that doesn't look, looks Norse, but it doesn't have to look like a fancy, you know, a fancy mead hall or something like that. You know, something, something rougher. Um, a clearer, more clearly more um, sort of basic. Uh, yeah. Okay. So this would be the main feature inside the stockade, right? There would be this, and then there would be just sort of smaller structures and things inside the wall. Right. There's um, a house for how that an individual home, and then this giant hall, and um, there could be other structures for storage, for materials, for Right, etc. Um, what you're supposed to be storing in all those places, I don't know because by the time we see it during the stockade battle, they've exhausted their supplies and they're not right. storing anything. <laughs> they've got mostly <laughs> empty storehouses by that time. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. It's not like they have a whole flock of like goats pinned up inside the stockade. <laughs> right. No. When they're starting. Just just a lonely pen where the goats used to be. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so, cool. But they presumably would have had those things, yeah. Right, right, right. Cool. Okay, so we're looking at props for the House of Haleth. I have to say that that spearhead is almost exactly what I was picturing. Uh, I think that's perfect. Oh, great. To- so the source of that is that we were discussing what it should look like, and um, we had talked earlier about it being bronze, a bronze mm-hmm. spearhead. And so uh, Adola went and looked at various real-life extant spears from bronze spears, and she found some from the Ernfeld culture and took one and then made a 3D model of it. So that 3D model based on an existing um, bronze spearhead. Very cool. Very cool. So I it like is, it. So because it's a 3D model, you can turn it and look at it from any direction. And Neat. one detail I would like to point out, I know it's very tiny and hard to see, but towards the base of the sphere, there's some decoration, mm-hmm. including what looks like some dots um, around the top of that decoration. Right. Four of them around it. And so she did phases of the moon with that. Uh-huh. And the idea was that men get to have the sun and elves get to be associated with stars so why not associate stars with the moon based on like they had the the moon letters and Ithildin right. and all that they seem to be into the moon so right. that would indicate this this bronze spearhead was made by dwarf yeah cool just in a real cool. little way i like that so yeah i thought that was really cool that she, she did all that so. yeah that's really neat i love it i love it the thing that i love about this and the reason i think um i'd been picturing um, like a, a slender bladed spear like this instead of something like a broad bladed spear or something is some, this would look really awesome as a scepter like once it gets broken right um, it would be 
a really effective weapon with a long shaft, but once it breaks, it will still look really cool um, when she's using it basically as a scepter. Um, whereas a broader spearhead would end up looking really weird, right? Uh, when she's just carrying it like that. So, um, yeah, cool. Awesome. Nick says you can actually you can actually buy a plastic or bronze finished steel model of this spearhead. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. She designed it as a a, a 3D print model. So right. if you know anyone with a 3D printer, you can... <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. I, I thought it was pretty neat, yeah. That is pretty neat. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so no, that's perfect. You need the spear. Exactly. Exactly. Right. We'll have to. Yeah. Future. Future. Uh, future live prop there. Um, cool. Cool. And so the uh, the the quern there we're thinking about for I mean obviously we're thinking about the grinding scene right in the Andreth episode. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, and there's a couple different styles of quern, so I, I'm not sure it has to be this exact one or anything, but. The idea is it would be something that is definitely not at the rotary level yet. Um, right. Because to get a round millstone like that, you need metal tools to make it. So this would be a, a hand just back and forth or possibly a circular motion, but by hand. Right. Where you're right. The, the large rock. So uh, this particular one is from Ireland. But obviously, mm-hmm. there's lots of examples from all over the world of stuff that looks like this. <laughs> lots of people formats. grinding grain with stones in lots of places. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, but no, that's great. That's that's uh, that really um, um, helps me to kind of picture that that scene a little bit more. Now, tell me about the uh, uh, the pottery uh, up top and, and sure. what what made you guys think of that. So um, to make pottery with a pottery wheel, you again need to be slightly more advanced, like Bronze mm-hmm. Age or further, mm-hmm. to, to get the pottery wheel. So prior to that, um, what people did was just the coil method, and then you smooth the edges. So you see pottery that's not quite as like true, mm-hmm. right? where it's not as perfectly even as it would right. be if you work it on a wheel. Right. And... So that's what these two cultures are, Bronze Age cultures, um, and that's how they made it. These are both coil, uh, coil pottery, and I believe it was Halstein who suggested the. I'm going to get the name wrong. Was it Kukateni Tripilia? Um, th- that's the two names of the two cities that are typical of this culture. Um, okay. In the, I think it's in the Ukraine, maybe uh, somewhere in that side of the world, and they obviously have a really unique decorating style. So their their pottery stands out like you yes. see that you're like ah it's those guys <laughs> right um, the the beaker culture one is obviously decorated differently it's more of it just carved stuff into clay so it it has a pattern to it um, less with the dye <laughs> so right. I right. didn't know if we had a preference on which one but either one would be technologically appropriate to the Haladim right right yeah I would tend to think more like the Welsh one um, in particular I, I think just because like the other one is a little flamboyant uh, in its decoration like it's harder for me to I because I would think that the 
Haladin would be fairly subdued in their decorations, right? I wouldn't imagine. I don't know. Maybe, but that's my, my first thought. When you have them. to make everything, when you have to make everything by hand, I'm making it anyway. Might as well make it unique. Like it, most cultures did get to the point of saying, I'm going to decorate this thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, no, I'm not saying undecorated entirely. Um, I'm just, uh, but like but, it's, it's a little harder for me to yeah. see them taking time making dyes is, is what I'm, is what I think what I'm mostly saying. Like, yes, I can see them carving. Um, mm-hmm. uh, okay. But that's also the other thing I think that's informing my imagination in this is I'm thinking specifically about the episode when Andreth goes from gorgeous, you know, Noldoran Nargothrond to, uh, you know, Brethil, and that things are going to be, are something going to look to her plainer. But one of the ways in which I think that we can um, kind of, is colors, right? I mean, Andreth's own clothes should be she she would stand out by the color of her garments as much as by almost anything else, right? Compared to everybody else who would be wearing mostly undyed, you know, furs and and undyed um, cloth. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to me. So anyway, I just so I'm imagining like yeah, simple like brown pottery and uh, you know brown pottery and wooden stuff and stone things and um, you know undyed furs and. Earth. Yeah, earth tone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, very, 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 very earth tone seems to me um, what. Um, uh, um, yeah. So as far as as far as as far as colors go, that that seems to that would be one really simple way to make Andreth to make it just like perfect, even for people who aren't paying close attention to textiles and things like that. The color would be unmissable. Right. Right. You know, if she's got uh, especially with her. Um, like when she gets her stole and everything, I mean that that's going to be an obvious difference. But um, but even before she's wearing the stole, for her to be, um, uh, for her to have just her, her regular garments be dyed garments would be a great way to make her look outlandish before anything else even happens. Um, uh, so that would be that would be a pretty easy, uh, um, okay, a pretty easy contrast to make. I think. Or we could have them. They could have dyes, but maybe only some, right? Like they're like one or well, just like a, a few colors that they. I mean, it depends on what resources they have. You, yeah, you can stick to more earth tones with dyes too, right? You can right. dye things in browns and greens and yellows and all. And you know, it depends what you're using. But I think it would be quite natural to have it not be as bright if right. They just wouldn't have access to the same scope of materials that, you know, right. the elves of Nargothrond would, who can go down to the sea and get stuff from Círdan, you know, and everything. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. I think that's I think that's good. And now we've got uh, the uh, House of Beor stuff. Um, We've got the Ring of Bari here and the stole. That's the stole. Was that? That's the stole for Mythmoot, isn't it? <laughs> didn't, didn't we have that yes. stole at Mythmoot? Yeah. We did indeed because I, th- I wanted to have a prop for, I don't know. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> to give to Andrew. Like, Andrew. Like the stole. That's um, right. The idea was to base the color scheme on the uh, sigil of the House of Baylor. Right. Um, heraldry that Tolkien drew and the, so the symbols on it are 
kind of modeled on that, but not the same, because this right. is supposed to be pre and having a banner. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah. Also, it was, of course, limited by the colors of linen that were available at my local <laughs> store, <laughs> rather than anything that I was going to like personally dye to exactly match. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, it's not perfect, but um, you talked about having a stole of leadership for some time, and I realized there's different styles of stole, but I, mm -hmm. I liked the pallium um, just because I feel it's a pretty unique design that well, I was hoping to make it look non-religious, but I mean, I did exactly say, okay, so I'll take the stole that the Pope wears and then design it based on that. That'll totally look non-religious. <laughs> yeah, that's um, pretty much how you do it, right? Yeah. Right, so maybe, so my design process may have been off, but that's what I was going for. Um, obviously you could change some of the color scheme or the design in various ways. I just wanted to have an example. So that was mm -hmm. the one from this video. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, I mean, a stole is a really interesting kind of thing anyway. I mean, like, as a garment, a stole is, I've always found stoles kind of curious um, in that. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah. Anyway, so I, I, I do like the, the sort of the single panel down. I mean, like designed to be, like, this is a garment which is obviously just designed to be not only decorative, but ceremonial. Um, to be highly visible, right? Because like it's supposed to differentiate you. I mean, it, it is the mar it, is, it is to mark you out of the crowd, right? You know, to mark you as um, the one that people should look at and look to. So it needs there needs to be a certain degree of flamboyance to it in that way, you know. So the different colors and the um, you know the nice uh, broad panel, I think it I think it works. Um, yeah, cool. Cool. The Ring of Bari here, I've always found really fascinating. Um, Tolkien's <laughs> picture of this, like his, like his mental picture of this, is extremely detailed, right? Like that description: a ring in the shape of two serpents with emerald eyes, one devouring and the other supporting a crown of green of golden flowers. That's incredibly specific right i mean it's really uh it's really detailed um and yet also puzzling like i don't get it i've never really gotten it like ex like the symbolism of it i mean like what is it meant to um uh what exactly is it meant to convey is it meant to convey conflict is it why snakes in the first place um why the two snakes? Why is the one eating the flowers? Um, and in what sense is the other supporting it? I mean, this is a really interesting interpretation of that. Um, you know, this one that you've shown here. Um, but even that, uh, like the supporting one seems a little bit like, I'm not sure. It's supporting in the fact that it's resting on its nose. But um, but I, I'm not even sure exactly what um, what he sort of pictured with that. Um but yeah, Brian, I agree. It's a lot going on for a piece of jewelry. It really is. Um, I mean, I know this is, it's a sigil, right? So I mean, like, imagine trying to describe, for instance, like the royal crest of England, right? With the lion and the crown and the chain and everything. There's a lot going on there, right? In that picture. Um, so it would have a similarly kind of complicated thing. And there's a lot of like complex uh, and frankly confused symbolism going on there um 
And so we, we get, I don't know, we get a, same, a similar kind of effect with the Ring of Bar here. But yeah, I've never really, I've never really understood the Ring of Bar here. I've never had a clear picture in my head of what the Ring of Bar here looks like. Um, I always thought um, that the Ring of Bar here in the film was too simple. Like it's, there's not enough going on in that ring. It's always seemed to me. The description that I have here, that's not from Lord of the Rings, is it? That's from some other source that's not Lord of the Rings, yes? I believe so. Right. So maybe in the films they didn't have rights to that description? Oh, maybe. But, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Who knows? Uh, I was about to say it's hard. Details while still. Yeah. Right? Like there's no crown of flowers, but there are crowns. And nothing's devouring anything, but there are two snakes. Like where they. And there's a green stone, but it's not the snake's eyes. Like. It's like they have details, but it's different enough to be like, we totally never read that description. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. See, but I I don't know. I guess. they had to be really careful, and I suppose if the uh, if the estate was feeling particularly trigger happy, they could go after them for having emerald eyes and such. But I don't know. I mean, it um, uh, the rights restriction would keep anyone from saying a description from the Silmarillion, but I don't know that they could necessarily knock them for having emerald-eyed serpents on the snake, you know? Like, it's... Um, oh, okay. I, I was never sure what those rules are. But but, but again, who I knows? Just, like, that's not what was described. No, it's not what was described. Yeah. Because um, that, that's it on the bottom there, right? The one on the bottom is the one from Peter Jackson's film. Yeah, yeah. An image yeah. that I've seen of someone attempting to create it that does not look like that yeah no it's um um yeah not it um but yeah i I don't um i don't understand it that doesn't mean i dislike it i mean i don't Mm. mind not understanding it it's 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 you know sort of quirky and weird um and you clearly get the sense that it does have a meaning like finrod could totally explain it to you Right. But um, um, but Tolkien never does (laughs) explain it to us exactly why that is the sigil of his house. Um, But. um, One thing I dislike about the top ring, which is which is lovely, I think it's it's. uh, better than almost any other depiction of the Ring of Bar here that I've seen. But I don't like how the bodies of the serpents become the ring itself. Mm. I'm, why is that? I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. You want to see more entwining and twisting and stuff? More entwining on? is what I want. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. It is pretty, it's pretty simple. It's also, it's like they, it's like it's like a single snake. It's a two-headed snake, not entwined snakes. Well, yeah, that's that's the other thing that I think that I dislike about it. That sense of the like the one single snake with the two heads. Um, it 
it's trying to, I mean, I, I feel like what they were going for when they were making that ring was to simplify, like to, to make it like cleaner and um, kind of easier to follow. But I get it as um, again, just to go back again to that uh, phrase that Brian was using in the description, there's a lot going on. And so I feel like there really needs to like the ring should not look clean and simple. It should look intertwined and complicated. Um, I, I kind of feel like it should be a piece of jewelry, which when you just glance at it, you don't even know what it is. You know, you have to kind of stare at it. You're like, okay, what? Oh, wait, snakes. Those are snakes. Okay, right. All right, those are snakes. Mm. And what is that thing? There's a, is that, oh, it's a crown? Like, why is it eating the crown? I don't know. Like that, you know, that I feel like that's should be the experience of seeing it. It should be complicated. Um, but, um, but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Brie, you're right. I'm sure they probably did um, not like deliberately not look at the Silmarillion too much just to save themselves from temptation uh, when they were doing the Lord of the Rings films. That's probably true. Um, but um, yeah. Wouldn't they also want to look at it to know what to avoid? Just so as not to accidentally allude to it. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, I, I I think you can, you kind of go both ways there, right? Like, don't circulate the Silmarillion among everybody, but uh, uh, but have some people who know it well and are paying attention to that kind of thing, you know, like Tom Shippey and such. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. um, true, good yeah. point. Would have called yeah. them out, right? Exactly. You know, he was looking over that kind of thing, but um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. Um, Sorry, now I'm just going to be like staring at this trying again for like the 20th time in my life trying to figure out the Ring of Bari here and I don't know that I'm going to be able to do it. Because yeah. there's not any clear orientation of any of the parts of this. Like, yeah. yes, there's that crown of flowers but like in that one the crown is a circle but does the crown have to be in a circle? It could still be a crown of flowers and be like a twisted thing and a different like you can orient these things very differently in space the, the serpents one could be eating and one can be supporting but where are they in relation to one another like right so there's there's a very detailed description but with nothing being oriented you don't know how it all fits together and he probably did he may have actually been looking at and being like yes let me just describe this real quick i can't <laughs> see this is the kind of thing I'm actually really because I don't think there exists any sketch that he made of this. And that kind of surprises me, actually, because, you know, I, I, I was just on Twitter. Someone was just asking me if Tolkien ever sketched uh, like the, uh, um, you know, the shards of Narsil or something. And I'm like, yeah, he wasn't so into weapons like he, you know. And so I was I was you know, I said he um, he liked landscapes, um, landscapes. Uh, heraldry and buildings pretty much in that order, right? Those are like the things that he most liked to draw uh, and sketch. Um, um, but but like heraldry, that's like number two on my list. He, he did very much like to do heraldic designs and things. And he the, de- the, the description of this is so detailed it's hard for me to imagine he did not have a picture of that in his head. Um, and right. so 
it surprises me that he that I, that we don't have that. Oh well. Um. Yeah. Anyway, um, it would be easier to depict as heraldry than as a three D object. Um, Brian, I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Okay, and then the dragon. The dragon helm is our last one, right? I think so. I think. Okay. Oh no, we got some other props. Let's just look at these briefly. This is just sort of the some of the um, to kind of illustrate some of the technology level that we're talking about. Right, and to draw attention to the fact that elves might not have some of these things because mm-hmm. they're kind of anti-technology in certain ways. It's not that they have nothing, but some things that men have, the elves are just not. Right, as we've talked about before, like, yeah. you know, uh, time-saving and labor-saving devices are one of the things that's driven technology for a long time, right? And elves don't have either one of those drives, right? They don't want to save labor and they don't want to save, they don't want to do things faster. Um, uh, so, yeah, there would be a lot of things that they wouldn't be doing, but yeah. Um, yeah, that's cool. Um, right, so they still do all the stuff, just more by hand. Right, exactly. With this kind of tool. Exactly, exactly. Um, right, cool. Okay, let's talk about the dragon helm, and then I think, I think we're good. The dragon helm is tough. It's really tough. The one thing that is most obvious and unavoidable, even though Alan Lee attempts to avoid it, is the mask. It's a masked helmet. That is like the point of the helm, right? Is that it's a masked helmet. It was made by the dwarves to be a masked helmet. Um, and when you wear it, you are wearing a mask and you look scary, <laughs> right? I mean, like, and it protects you from fire. Uh, so I, I, it's, um, I have to admit, I, although it's lovely in several ways, I've never been a fan of Alan Lee's dragon helm drawing. Um, there are two things that I dislike about it. One is the masklessness. Like, it's just, like, it loses half of the point, right? Um, The mask, I think, is important not only for practical reasons. It's not just because it says that there's a mask, but I think it's symbolically important. It's thematically important that it has a mask. Like, that it is not just a hat. It is a mask that you put on. Like, you put on the dragon helm and you are transformed. Like, your own identity is concealed by the dragon. Like, it is your identity. When Turin, when Tur- when, you know, when Turin especially, like, when he receives it, when he takes it, when he puts it on, when he puts it back on later on, um, it's a big deal. It has to do with, like, his identity. It becomes his face, right, in that way. So it has to be a mask. It can't just have a nose guard and cheek flaps. Like, that's not okay. Um, though, again, I can understand why he did it that way. It can't. It just can't be like that. Of the masks on this page, of course, I love the Sutton Who mask. Who doesn't love the Sutton Who mask? Um, um, I am going to suggest 
what seems, frankly, to be a countercultural move in helmet masks, and that is not to have a funny mustache on it. Funny mustaches, funny mustaches seem to be almost de rigueur when it comes to helmet masks, right? I don't fully understand why, um, but I'd prefer we not do a funny mustache on the mask. Um, just my personal preference, even though, as I say, that seems countercultural. But um, I do, I, Brian, there's no question that the mustache is the best part of the Sutton Who mask. Like, yeah, no, I hear you. Um, but um, but I would kind of like to avoid that. I would also, I think the mask shouldn't just be a flappy thing like that, like the Sutton Who mask. It's a little too there flappy. Was a lot of about how to flip the mask up without it then obscuring the dragon and looking dumb because then you're kind of walking around with something on your head that's just right. open. I think my favorite so, on this on this of, of these images um, mm-hmm. the uh, the 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 this one here the one with the big dragon head and the cheeks mm-hmm. and the, the nose guard there I like that that's my favorite mask I think of all of the mask concepts mm-hmm. here. Um, it's not a flappable mask, right? It's it's not a movable mask, but it's... Yeah. I mean, the eye holes are a little bit big. Um, it's a right. little it easy to get easy. stabbed in through. We need to, you know, we, we'd want to narrow those a little bit, I think. Um, anyway, so, I guess, so to me, the two big things, right, the two most important things about the Dragon Helm um, are the mask and the dragon, right? I mean, we the, the, those are obviously the two major features here. Um... um I so that um um should to what extent to what extent um should the uh, um to what extent should the mask have a face on it should it be a face a mask with a fa- I mean thematically that's kind of tempting right that like it is another face right um so I kind of like that, but can the can the face be a dragon? That's another option, isn't it? Right to have uh, have it be. It's in mockery of Glaurung, right? Um, mm-hmm. In defiance, at least, if not actively in mockery of Glaurung. Um, so here's the other thing that I don't like about the Alan Lee helmet. I don't like the space. I don't like the, the uh, it looks like a carrying handle, you know, like the way that you get, you get empty, you get like the, 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 the four legs and the back legs and then the space in between, right? So that the dragon looks all skinny and it looks like a carrying handle, you know, like from the top. I, I, that's what I, I, that's the other thing. So I, I, I'd like, it has no mask and I don't like the dragon. So that's why I'm, why I'm not a huge fan of the Alan Lee dragon helm uh, design. Um, I th- like the dragon, like something more like, I think the dragon should be on the helmet more like the one we see on the top right over here. That seems to me a little bit better. Um, but one? here's my, are you thinking of? The top right, the one over, the one over here, um, yeah, oh, okay. yeah, the top right with the blue mm-hmm. background, in the sense mm-hmm. of, um, like the way that the body of the dragon is 
like on lying down on the helm seems to me to mm. avoid the carrying handle effect um, that Alan Lee's helmet has. Of course, the one on the bottom left down there um, has some uh, empty space in there without looking like a handle. So like that's also possible. Um, but um, so but here's my question conceptually. Conceptually speaking, how is the dragon depicted? Does the dragon look scary? Or, I mean, you wouldn't want a wussy-looking dragon on your helmet, because the helmet has to look impressive, right? But then again, it's not supposed to be like a glorification of Glaurung either. I mean, it's in defiance of the dragon. Which is why, Dave, I find your suggestion a kind of intriguing one, right? Um, If the mask itself is like a dragon then there's a little bit of a, like, right back at you, Glaurung kind of defiance to it, which is kind of fun. Um, I don't think it really works. I mean, it's supposed to have the dragon on it, um, and so it would be a little bit weird to have a dragon on top and yet also have, like, a draconic face uh, to it. Um, It's a little too much dragon. Yes, it's a little too much dragon. Um, But um, um, I think... Of all of these pictures, my favorite dragon is the one in the very middle, this gray one with the gold nose in the very middle. He's just adorable. Like the kind of peekaboo dragon, right? Like just like poking his head up over the top of the helmet is a little bit adorable. Yeah, I mean, it's cute, right? And I'm not sure I hate the effect either, right? Like to have an impressive looking helmet that has a cute dragon on it, right? Like... There's something to be said for cute as mockery there towards Glaurung. But again, you don't want to undermine the impressive effect of the helmet by having the dragon be too adorable, obviously. But um, um, you're trying to terrify whoever's coming across you in battle. So, Which is the, about the mask, I'm thinking. Yeah. Primarily yeah. is the mask, right? Yeah, um, uh, yeah and th- again, that's why I think the mask is so important. Because... That's what's going to stand out. Um, uh, It's not just... I mean, the full solid metal helm like we get in the bottom center here, right? With the full, full, you know, casket helm there um, is really imposing. Yeah, Yeah, is really imposing in battle, right? Because, you know, because of the absolute facelessness of the person that you're fighting against. You know, that sort of sense of dehumanization. But the mask does more than dehumanize, right? It, like, takes away your face but gives you this other new terrifying face, which clearly is a terrifying face. It should not be comforting looking. It should not be – it should not just be, like, noble and impressive. Um, It should be – it should not have a funny mustache. It should be – it should be – Whatever the effect of the mask is, it is a terrifying mask to see in battle. Um, so, um, yeah. The idea, now, the one on the, the one with the black background with the long beard, the one that looks like a dwarf there, second from the right on the top row there, is a really intriguing idea because, of course, it was made by dwarves. And so the idea that they would put a dwarf face on the mask is makes sense, right, and is kind of interesting. Um, 
and also the way in which the mask beard gives some nice neck protection as well from the front is also kind of cool uh, in concept. Um, but I don't, especially since when we introduced the Dragon Helm, when we had Telkar gift the Dragon Helm originally, it was forged as a gift, right? It wasn't, it's not like it's a, it's not, it's, it's not re-gifted, right? This is not something the dwarves made for themselves and then gave, and then gave away, is it? Uh, there's a lot of gifting going on in the Dragon yeah. Helm story. So in Tolkien's text, it goes, Telkar makes it for Azagal. Azagal gives it to Maedhros. Maedhros gives it to Fingen. Fingen gives it to Hador. Right. Um, okay, right. So it was made for Azagal originally. Yeah, we we show Telkar making it, and we show Fingen gifting it to Hador. I don't know that we've shown any of the in between steps of that process. Right. Um, right. Because, uh, um, but technically, it was originally for given to Azagal. Given to Azagal, right? Yeah, I'd forgotten but that. Maybe so that he could give it to his elf friends, like I, forged for like made for Azagal like to wear or made for Azagal so he'd have it in his to board give. of gifts. Right. I, I that I couldn't answer. Right. Right. Yeah. Um You know, it's interesting. The one on the the masked helm on the far left on the top, the one with the insect eyes, right? That on the one hand doesn't feel thematically right at all. And yet that would be kind of terrifying. Right. Like people would look creepy and scary wearing that. And it's the effect of the dragon helm is very striking. Like it is terrifying to see in battle. Um, And so I feel like the mask needs to be weird, you know, like it needs to be very striking, not just look like a face. Um, um, So like the one is that a samurai mask? Bottom bottom row, second from the right. The one with the other, with the with the swoopy up, funny mustache. I don't recall. And the awesome the ears. That no, that's not okay. I, I'm not. I, I'm trying to it's remember where the, that's. It's got really pointy tops to it, and I don't recall its origin. Yeah, I don't remember where that. I don't, I don't know where that's from. There were a lot of pictures of masks, helmets in this thread, and this yeah. is not all of them. These are just the ones I could fit on the slide. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I, so I'm, I don't like, cause that's too human a face. Like that's a, that's, you know, with like, it's got a, a very, it's got lips and a nose, right. That looks very mm-hmm. sort of normal. Right. Um, uh, it, there should be something. Hmm. I almost said dehumanizing in the sense of like taking away you don't look like a person, right? When you're wearing it, you don't look like mm-hmm. a normal human, but it shouldn't be dehuman. It shouldn't be take you down below, nor it should take you above, right? It sh- you should look like, um, something strange and almost superhuman wearing this helmet, right? Um, not, uh, just look like a sort of, uh, um, monster, right? But again, so it's, made by the dwarves. But you'll notice, of course, the elves do a lot of re-gifting of it. (laughs) Do you get the impression the elves weren't real fond of the dragon elm? (laughs) Right? It's very heavy. 
It so is very heavy. You have to be someone with not only a fairly large head to fit into it, but also have like a really somebody with a really big neck. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Someone who's a bulky guy. Is bulky guy, body. right? It's so much weight on your head. Like nobody wants that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I do think the mask absolutely is part of the helm. Like you can't wear the helm, um, no flap, no no mask flap. First of all, because those are always comical. Like Sir Bedivere, you know, in uh, in the Holy Grail, like um, a, 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 a little flappy thing like that is always funny. Um, but um, uh, but at the same time, I, I I think it's very much a part of the um, um, a part of the helmet. You know, like it is when you are wearing the helm, you are wearing the mask. You can't you cannot both wear the helmet and show your own face. Like, I think that needs to be definitely a thing. Um, Wow. So in in movies, a lot of times they like to be able to show your face. um, Despite actors seem to prefer that. Yeah. Directors seem to prefer that, too. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you want to design it in such a way that the director has no choice but to leave the mask in place? That's it. That's it. Okay. Well, again, like, what I want is to have... Because I, I... Especially in the Turin story, it just seems to me so important, the putting on and the taking off of the helm, right? Like, there's... He's not just... Especially with Turin, the question is always, who is he, right? What is his name today? Right. Like what's like, where, where is he in his story? Where is he in his mind? Um, you know, who who are we seeing on screen? Are we seeing Turin, son of Hurin? Are we seeing, you know, Nath in the wronged? Are we seeing, you know, Agarwain? Who are we seeing? Right. And when he when you when you when he puts the dragon helm on. Right. He is. The heir of the house of Hadar. Right. He is the, you know, the warrior king of Dor Loman um, in exile when he's wearing the dragon helm. And like it's it's it is an identity. Like the helmet is an identity. It's not a prop. It's an identity. Um, And therefore wore that helmet walking in to the Estelad meeting where he basically created the House of Hador. mm -hmm. So. Yeah, like that's that's definitely the message we should be sending with the, its appearance again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, so that's why I want the mask to be a part of it. I mean, it really it is like a complete like your own personal identity is eclipsed by the dragon helm when you put it on. Um, so that's why I feel so I feel strongly about vague things about the helmet, but I have no clear opinions about the actual design choices, right? Like, what should the dragon look like? I don't know. Um, I guess, conceptually, that's one of the things I've never really understood about the dragon helm. That is, why should the anti-dragon helmet have a dragon on it? Exactly. Like, what exactly is the... Are we shooting for there? You know, in that concept. Um, It's defiance of the dragon, but, um, you're not becoming the dragon, you know, you're not rooting for the dragon. You're not, um, I can see why a dragon slayer would take a dragon as their sigil afterwards. Right. You know, after you've, but 
when you're talking about a still free-range dragon who's only been encountered once in battle, um, I mean, this is—it's a very premature symbol, you know. Like, live dragon out of your calculations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it, it, the, the helmet as a whole does. I mean, to, to go back to Hobbit quotes, the helmet totally laughs at live dragons, right? I mean, that's what it's doing from one end to the next. Um, how does it do that? Why does it, again, in mockery, in like, I am taking your fierceness and the terror of you and I am um, uh, assimilating that, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm acquiring that, you know, for myself um, uh, and using that against you, uh, dragon. Um, I um Yeah, Brian says if I were the, if it were the elves, I believe they wouldn't want to honor the dragon in that way, right? It does feel like putting the dragon in a place of honor, um, which again, after you've killed a dragon, going around with a dragon symbol is just a boast, right? Look at the then then the more you puff up the greatness of that creature, the better you look, right? Look at this amazing, incredible creature that I slew, by the way, or that my forefather slew, or whatever. Um, but when said dragon is still only gaining in strength on the other side of the battlefield, how do you do that? Why do you do that? I, I this is what I still don't get about the dragon helm. What were the dwarves thinking when they did this? That's what I guess I don't know. Well, um, yeah, Brian says, I feel the dwarves would feel more comfortable being premature with such a boast. Um, yeah, I mean, like, is that it? Like, we're so confident in going out to battle against you that we're going to depict you as if you were already taxidermied and mounted on our wall? Like, is that the kind of message that we're getting here? Um, just like on this helmet? I don't know. Um... Uh, yeah. Um, Stephen is giving us the quotation, which it might be well to read. It had a visor after the manner of those that the dwarves used in their forges for the shielding of their eyes, and the face of one that wore it struck fear into the hearts of all beholders, but was itself, that is, one's face itself, guarded from dart and fire. Upon its crest was set in defiance a gilded image of Glaurung the dragon, for it had been made soon after he first issued from the gates of Morgoth. Right. On the crest, in defiance. That's the word that I can't wrap my brain around. Defiance. Like how you would depict the dragon in defiance. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know. Because it's not just a random heraldic dragon. That's the thing. It's a portrait. There's only one dragon, right? It's Glaurung himself. 
depicted on the helmet. Again, it's, so it's not just, there's no such thing as a purely heraldic dragon, right? There's only Glaurung. And it's him. It's a portrait. It's a it's a sculpture of Glaurung. As and he that's was. Glaurung yeah. mocks Turin for that, saying that like, oh, I see you've got my face on your helmet. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, ask him to maybe take it off so that they could see each other eye to eye, suggesting that it has a significant enough covering that Terran's not making eye contact with Glaron during that. What if what if and so Dave I think what I'm thinking of here is a kind of compromise with your dragon oh. mask suggestion. What if instead of like Alan Lee and like the one both of the ones on the right hand side depict like the whole body of the dragon on top of the head right what if instead of that it's just like the neck and head of Glaurong so that like the whole sort of crown like the top of the helmet up here is like the the head of Glaurong with his eyes like staring down here and then the mask underneath right um what would look really cool is if the mask itself looked like fire coming out of the mouth of the dragon, right? Um, uh, so you've got your fire protection, which is actually the fire of Glaurung protecting you against the fire of Glaurung. And you've got, so that the terror would be, I mean, it would look like, uh, so again, Marie, you were making me think of this, like Glaurung being like, hey, I'm sitting here talking to myself here, right? As you're as you're wearing as you're wearing the me helmet, right? Um uh, Yeah. Um Yeah. That could work. Something like that could work. Um so that it's less of a statuette on top of your head kind of deal. And more of a like the whole top of the of the helmet is shaped into this like you know the whole helmet is itself a kind of dragon head uh, thing. Um, I like the idea of blending the elements together because saying mm-hmm. there has to be a full dragon up here and then there's something crazy going on with the face. It, it's pretty busy. Mm-hmm. Um, so to yes. to take whatever's going on up here and kind of turn it down into it's all one continuous design. Yeah, so that you don't have, like, a scary face and a dragon statue, right? But rather, yeah, the whole thing kind of together. I think that would work better. I think that would work better. And if the dragon face is scary enough, it would be pretty scary, right? I mean, like, it's supposed to... That was the part of the description that uh, Stephen kindly quoted for us there. Um, The part that always stuck out to me most was the part about striking fear into the hearts of all beholders, right? All beholders, everybody who sees this uh, has fear struck into their hearts. Um, And if that were the effect, if if it were to be... um, if to look at it, we're, we're like looking into the face of Glaurung himself, right? That would do the trick as far as striking fear into the hearts into the hearts of all beholders. Um, whereas no little statuette on top is going to do that, right? Right. That yeah. That that's I think a, a better interpretation of this. Um, yeah. Because if if you looked at the the one that had the insect like eyes that you were talking mm-hmm. about earlier as being an unusual design, 
exactly the eyes look like an animal and that's what makes that one creepy so right. if we have creepy dragon eyes as part of the face of the helmet yeah this is suddenly looking scarier <laughs> right right and the crest i mean if he i could easily imagine him having some kind of uh glaurung himself that is having some kind of crest uh down his spine um and so that could go over you know the crest of the helm um uh yeah yeah um steven says it puts me in mind of depictions of hercules wearing the skin of the nemean lion um yeah actually um that's kind of another way that also i could see um as a way for it to be defiance right um like I am, it's like I'm wearing your head as a hat, right? Um, again, like you're, like I, you know, it's a, it's not a beaver skin cap, right? And it's not like a bear skin rug, uh, but it's it, it, kind of like the Nemean lion head, right? With your face looking out of it. Um, I'm going to take, uh, you know, my enemy, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to. Uh, where his body parts as decoration is defiant. That's defiant for sure. That counts. Um, so yeah, as if it could be something that like, once you kill the dragon, like, you know, and, and uh, like empty out the brains, you could wear it. Right. I mean like that, if that were kind of the effect of it. So it's not like it actually looks like it is the dragon necessarily. Um, like again, it's not like you're trying to duck disguise. It's not like you're doing dragon cosplay exactly, but, but it has that, like it gives you, uh, the frame like that as if, yeah, you are the, you are the, 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 the conqueror who is wearing the dragon. Um, yeah, that makes conceptual sense to me as a helmet made in defiance of the dragon. Yeah. Well, I would be really interested to see sketches along this line. Usually you get, like Alan Lee's, the statuette on the head um, version of the dragon helm. And I've never seen one that filled me with terror. Uh, Statuettes, by definition, are not terrifying. (laughs) I mean, very rarely have I been terrified by a statuette. Uh, Um whether it's on a hat or oh, not. Oh, I think there's some creepy dolls out there. I there are creepy dolls. Quite... Agreed. But that's not the same thing. That's not the same thing. I um, agree that a beautifully crafted uh, dragon just perched on the top like a, a little kitty cat going, hi, I'm just right. hanging out here. So, right. <laughs> it's not terrifying. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, like the, dra- again, the, the top right dragon, like that's pretty good. Like that's pretty good. But still, like... Even there, it's still a little cute, you know? Um, but, um, okay. All right. Well, it's getting late, um, and I sh- we, should, uh, uh, we should stop now. But we're, uh, next time, we're going back to episode 11. Um, uh, so this is an episode I have been looking forward to all season long. Um, we're going to get back to Fingolfin's Big Push, picking up on our discussion from last time from episode 10. But we are also going to be talking about the Athrabeth uh, between Finrod and Endreth, um, one of the core texts uh, behind this season. So, um, awesome. Cool. Brian says it should be written and have gone through several drafts. I look forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun. So, um, 
I'll be uh, looking forward to, to reading a script of episode 11. That's very exciting. Uh, and we will discuss that next time. So next session is on August 26th. Uh, so two weeks from today. Um, and uh, when I should be, hopefully, if all goes well, back from my road trip by then. So that'll be good. Um, uh, so excellent. Good. So we look forward to uh, seeing folks then. Thanks, everybody for uh, joining us uh, today. And I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.